Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special episode of the only writing podcast you'll ever need brought to you by the Saginaw Valley State University Writing Center. I'm the producer, Garrett Lewis, and this past semester, I worked on a senior thesis about football in the former Yugoslavia, and today I am going to give you a not-so-brief overview of my thesis in an audio format. If you are interested in reading the rest of the paper, feel free to email me. I'll link my email in the episode description here, and I'll be happy to send you the paper if you want to read it, but I hope you enjoy this episode. Seeing Through Football, Crafting Tito's Yugoslavian Vision with Football. Introduction. The former Yugoslavia, today, is a state defined by its visible and violent failures. Twice the country appeared on the map, and twice it disappeared. Thus, when scholarly endeavors about the former state are pursued, the topics are often focused on these failures. Scholars focus on the negative aspects of competing nationalisms and how these differing national identities twice led to violent war. This view of the former country, however, is extremely limiting. In fact, under Josip Broz Tito, Yugoslavia's communist president for life, there were brief glimpses of hope for unity among the various ethnicities and nations of the state. Tito believed that revolutionary socialism would eradicate the necessity for combative nationalisms as it would end the economic equality that created violent division. One method used to publicly manufacture an identity of unity, however, was the manipulation of the sport of football. In this very public medium, Tito could present a message of unity that would ultimately fit his wider vision for the state. Thus, throughout the tenure of Joseph Bros. Tito, the sport of football was used with wavering success to promote Tito's vision of a socialist state. This sport aided in the creation of domestic legitimacy for Tito's vision and leadership, as well as a respectable international reputation. This vision was based in the methods of unifying the state's population under a common supranational Yugoslavian identity, rooted in the patriotic socialist slogan of brotherhood and unity. This vision was not static, however, and adapted to changing climates as seen following the 1948 separation from the Soviet Union. After this, Tito's vision of socialism, self-management, separated the state from the rest of the socialist world, rendering the state an apostate on both sides of the Cold War. This adaptability would be evident in football as well, yet the successes of such were not absolute. Part 1. Establishing an Alternate Yugoslavia. Tito's Communist Vision from 1941 to 1948. As mentioned, the history of Yugoslavia is a turbulent topic filled with combative nationalist movements, the two most dominant being the Serbs and the Croats. Tito and the Yugoslavian communists emerged, however, to offer an alternative for these nearly binary national movements. The interwar kingdom of Yugoslavia had ultimately been ripped apart by these two movements, and the outbreak of World War II set the stage for a smaller, yet equally violent civil war in the state. The Croat Ustasha and the Serbian Chetniks fought fervently for their respective national movements, yet these groups were incredibly exclusive and defined themselves upon ethnic lines. Thus, Tito, who had risen to the rank of the Secretary General of the Communist Party of Yugoslavia, KPJ, in 1939, 
emerged as an option for Yugoslavs that did not fit the binary categories of the Ustasha or Chetniks. Tito and his People's Liberation Army, or Partisans, drew on the centuries-old concept of Yugoslavism, a movement that sought the unity of the world's southern Slavs, to bring together Yugoslavian citizens in a fighting force that could both combat the Ustasha and Chetniks, as well as the occupying Axis forces. The Partisans and Tito saw classical Marxism as the remedy for the ethno-national tensions that were driving apart the country, and thus coined the slogan, Brotherhood and Unity, as a message that represented what they were fighting for. With each partisan victory, Tito began addressing liberated Yugoslavs as the head of state, regardless of the fact that he in no way held that title. Yet the people of Yugoslavia began to view him as liberator and leader, establishing his domestic legitimacy. In the immediate aftermath of the Second World War, Tito was focused most on the establishment of international legitimacy. Much of this would come from the political ideology he followed as a communist. He would receive support from Joseph Stalin's Soviet Union. Even further, Tito manipulated the post-war foreign policy desires of the world's powers off one another to find his reborn state a place on the map once again. Through a coalition of political parties, Tito and his Popular Front took control of the Yugoslavian parliament, the Skupština, on 29 November 1945, with 90% of a nationwide vote. With these successes, Tito found political success, but we can now shift to the topic of football to see how the sport was used during the same period. Part 2. Football for Nation Building. Implementation of Tito's vision from 1941 to 1948. Football had been one of Yugoslavia's most popular sports from the moment it was introduced to the Balkan nation in the early 20th century. And during the interwar period, workers' clubs were the primary social gathering space for the repressed Yugoslavian communists. In fact, football had become so popular across the continent of Europe that Tito was not original in his manipulation of the sport for his own nation-building desires. Nonetheless, football was in no way free of the stages of combat throughout the Second World War. Occupying forces in Yugoslavia, such as the Italians, tried to force Yugoslavian clubs to compete in its top-flight competitions, while Ante Pavlic, leader of the Nazi puppet Independent State of Croatia, or the Ustasha's, rebranded Croat football clubs to fit a warrior-like Croat image. In the Italian-occupied region of Split, one club refused the Italian orders and disbanded rather than play in the Italian football competitions. Thus, Tito saw Croatian sports club Hajduk Split as a physical embodiment of his resistance. Footballers had already been flocking to the partisan movement, serving as fighters, yet Tito saw Hajduk as a propaganda opportunity. The partisans thus absorbed Hajduk, rebranding the club as Hajduk NOVJ and replacing the Croat Shahovnica on its badge with a red star, or pedokraka. All players were either members of the KPJ or the youth wing of the party. The club would then go on a 20-match unbeaten streak through liberated Adriatic ports in 1944, with this tour culminating in one of Tito's most shining moments. On 23 September 1944, at the Stadio della Vittoria in Bari, Italy, Hajduk would play a match against a squad of professional footballers from the United Kingdom. In front of a crowd of 40,000 UK, US, and Yugoslavian servicemen, the Yugoslavian tricolor with the red star in its center, and Tito's Yugoslavian national anthem, Hey Slovenia, rang out for the first time. In the words of Andielko Marusic, before the eyes of the whole of Europe, in the presence of 50,000 witnesses of all races and nationalities, 
Tito's Yugoslavia had finally been acknowledged. Though the Hajduk squad would suffer its first loss, Yugoslavia dealt its first true victory on the world stage. Following the end of the war, Tito and the KPJ began implementing footballing infrastructure that was in line with Soviet-style communist physical culture. This became the basis for Yugoslavian communist football, as well as physical culture throughout the state, as the state was following the Soviet line. Sports became a method for education of the new values of the state, focusing not on capital gain as it did before, but mental and physical growth. Sporting infrastructure in the wrecked post-war state was then rebuilt through voluntary action of players and club members. Similarly, Tito and the KPJ would begin the process of liquidating interwar bourgeois clubs, especially those who had collaborated with occupying regimes, and would then replace them with newly ideologically congruent socialist clubs. Famous Yugoslavian clubs like Red Star Belgrade, Partisan Belgrade, and Dinamo Zagreb were founded during this period. It was also during this period that Hajduk Split was no longer a representation of the military and returned to civilian hands. In 1946, the National Representation, or the Representacia, was formed and began playing international matches across the Eastern Bloc, with their first match coming against Czechoslovakia in 1946. Ultimately, this boom period for Yugoslavia was the most representative of Tito's manipulation of football for his vision of the state. Part 3. Yugoslavia Through Self-Management Tito's Vision from 1948 to the 1960s Tito's path to communism in the immediate stages following World War II was following a Soviet path, albeit an almost Stalinist path. Yet the second stage of his rule over communist Yugoslavia was defined by a shifting of course. Up until 1948, Tito had almost idolized Joseph Stalin, yet as Tito's personal stature rose in the aftermath of the war, he started to build his own sphere of influence in the Balkans. Stalin desired and demanded to be the pinnacle of communist dictators, and Tito's growing influence was a threat to this. Tito recognized the animosity that was growing between himself and his hero, but Tito was unwilling to establish communism in Yugoslavia just to become a pawn of the USSR. Tito had no desire to become such pawn, and stated in April of 1948, no matter how much each of us loves the land of socialism, the USSR, he can in no case love his country less. After months of disagreements over foreign policy, Tito duly broke from Stalin in March of 1948, and with this, many Yugoslavians would grow in their respect for him because he stood tall against the Soviet dictator. His legitimacy domestically would grow as a result of the split. However, now, Tito had to come up with some sort of political rationale. Tito would then collaborate with the KPJ's chief ideologue, Edvard Cardi to draft a new ideological position for the now non-aligned state. Cardi would point to Friedrich Engels' withering state theory, which stated that when the means of production was owned and managed directly by the workers, freedom was achieved and the state would wither away. As a result, the Yugoslavian vision of communism became known as socialist self-management, where the central state bureaucracy was no longer in charge of the means of production, rather Republican-level managers and workers' councils within each factory was. Yugoslavia would then create a hybrid economy where some measures of the market economy were permitted while it was still labeled a socialist system of management. To maintain this ideological shift, Tito and the KPJ underwent their most Stalinistic phase, where members who did not fall into line with the shift went to the infamous labor camp and re-education facility at Goliatok. 
Here, comrades were subject to Western psychoanalytic practices where they were manipulated into believing that they were criminals for thinking a different way, and the prison was entirely self-managed with prisoners manipulating one another. While these purges paled in the brutality of the Stalinist purges of the 1930s, they were nonetheless brutal mentally for the fallen comrades. By the early 1950s, self-management was in full swing, and on paper this inherently made Yugoslavia a more equal and unified society. Yet the KPJ took this a step further. At the 6th Congress of the KPJ in 1952, the party underwent a rebrand and became the League of Communists of Yugoslavia, SKJ. With this change, the Yugoslavian model totally broke from the Soviet model of the monolithic single-party state. Although there was no room for non-communist viewpoints, each Republican-level communist party was placed on equal footing with each other. In a way, the state had a source of political plurality from this change, unifying the state at least initially. The final portion of Tito's vision from this period was the establishment of international legitimacy through the non-aligned movement. Tito firmly planted himself in the state in the direct middle of the Cold War politics. By breaking from the Soviet Union, Yugoslavia was broken away from the entirety of the Eastern Bloc, yet as a communist state, they were not so readily accepted into the West. In the same way that Tito offered Yugoslavs a third option during the Second World War, he offered states across the world a third option to the binary politics of the Cold War. This was known as the non-aligned movement. Through this, Tito's alternative personality and his alternative methods to handling the binary issues of his day gave him international legitimacy. Part 4. Self-Management and Football. Football and Tito's Changing Vision, 1948-1960s. to the 1960s. During this period of transition in Tito's vision, football's place was complicated. On some fronts, such as the furthering of Yugoslavia's international reputation, football became incredibly useful. Yet domestic legitimacy was almost complicated by the sport. Football also became a useful breeding ground for the implementation of self-managing socialism as it was a setting so visible and idolized by such a wide part of the state's population. However, this showed some hypocrisy in the state's bureaucracy. Yugoslavian football's best-known achievement during this period came with the 1952 Olympics in Finland. From the point of the split from Stalin, Tito and the SKJ were well aware that footballs were not only to be ambassadors for Yugoslavia, but for the self-management that they had initiated since the split as well. Thus, any international fixtures for the national team were representative of Tito's foreign policy initiatives. During the 1952 Olympics, the Yugoslavian national team was pit against the Soviets in the second round of the competition. Both of the respective states' leaders understood the political importance of the meeting, with both of them sending words of encouragement and reminders that this was bigger than football to both of their sides. Though it took a replay after the Yugoslavian national team blew a 5-1 lead in the first fixture, the Yugoslavians would win 3-1 on the second try, and by proxy, defeat Soviet-style communism with their self-managing socialism. Again, Tito and Yugoslavia stood tall against the Soviets and Stalin, and as such, the state celebrated in unity. Beyond international fixtures with the national team, Tito and the SKJ used the nation's top clubs to create international and domestic legitimacy as well. Clubs would tour emerging ally nations to foster stronger ties between the states. Yugoslavian clubs would travel to places such as Australia, Egypt, Israel, 
India, Ethiopia, and even as far as East Asia during this period. In a bid to foster greater domestic legitimacy for his regime, Hajduk Split would travel to expat communities in Australia to try and win over former Yugoslavian citizens that left during the war or after Tito rose to power. The goal of this tour was to convince misinformed compatriots that the path to socialism was succeeding and the new regime in Yugoslavia would offer greater opportunities than Australia would. The least successful aspects of Tito's vision during this period came in aligning football with the principles of self-managing socialism. At its core, football was not sustainable in a self-management system, and the government was already showing hypocrisy within their new system as it had to funnel money into the sport to keep clubs afloat. Even more, as ambassadors of the government on foreign tours, clubs would receive lucrative profits and then stash them away in what were known as black reserves. So while football stayed officially amateur throughout the 1950s, clubs would use these reserves to pay players under the table as well as to illegally pay clubs for player transfer fees. So although the regime labeled football as a shining example of socialist self-management, football itself was inherently anti-socialist. Further instances of clubs circumventing the amateur status of the sport to pay their stars or clubs paying one another in the illegal transfers of players prove this point. One final disappointing aspect of football that was incongruent with Tito's vision during this period was how it interacted with the quest for unity within the state. While the win over the Soviet Union was a wonderfully unifying experience for the population, other instances within the game showed reluctance to move past earlier conflicts within the society. At a match between Vardar Skopje and Lovchen Setnya in Montenegro, the Lovchen fans decided to rain stones upon the Croat match officials after they awarded a penalty to Vardar. Yet even more concerning was the fact that the stones flew along with chants of Ustasha hurled at the officials. Another instance of disunity during this period came with the foundation of the Torcida supporters group of the famed club Hajduk. Zagreb-based university students had been inspired by the scenes of supporters at the 1950 World Cup in Brazil, and they decided to found a supporters group for their preferred Hajduk. The state officials were not so supportive of this style of supporting, and would in fact label it klubashtvo, or excessive loyalty, and blame this sort of activity for the ethnically charged violence that was growing in the Yugoslavian game. The issue for the party with Torcida, however, was that many of the members of the club were party members themselves. So while the supporters group may have been a bit rowdy and a bit violent, they were ultimately ingrained within the state's functioning mechanisms. Overall, this period of Yugoslavian football had mixed successes in furthering Tito's vision of the state. On the fronts of legitimacy, football became an extremely valuable tool, especially for nation building. Yet in terms of self-management and unity, football would fall flat. Part 5. Weathering the Storm. Reforms in Tito's Vision from the 1960s to 1980. This period of Tito's tenure at the helm of the Yugoslavian state has been characterized as a time of reform by many scholars. The ethnic tension within Yugoslavia had been boiling under the surface from the day that Tito set foot in his office, yet during this period he showed a remarkable ability to adapt to the needs of his state. Historians such as Marie Janine Chalitz would characterize the 1950s as Yugoslavia's boom years, yet by the early 1960s, the flaws of socialist self-management were beginning to show. 
Other historians, such as Igor Stieks, would claim that the system not only highlighted disparities within a supposedly egalitarian society, but encouraged competition between the federal units of the state. By 1962, Tito and the SKJ were holding meetings where they were debating the issues within the state. Tito highlighted ethnic chauvinism, localism, and national particularism as the key issues threatening the system he had worked so diligently to implement. This meeting, however, offered no solutions and honestly served more to create further ideological rifts within the governing body. Nonetheless, Tito and Edvard Cardi acknowledged mismanagement within the bureaucracy of the state and launched commissions bent on reforming their system. Their solution? Further decentralization. Self-management at its core was already decentralized. In fact, by the 1960s, the federal government held direct control over very little of the economy. Yet now the mentality was that Republican-level decision-making was going to drive the state, with the federal government being a system of balance. This move actually created mass amounts of factionalism within Yugoslavian political culture. This may prompt questions from onlookers. Why would Tito make these decisions if they simply caused more division? In his mind, federalization held on to the weak unity he had fought so diligently to establish. Beginning in the early 1960s, Tito was diversifying his own core of advising, allowing for plurality at all levels of government in Yugoslavia. Though communism was the only political ideology allowed, differing opinions were accepted. The 1963 constitutional revision further ensured that all state institutions were to be staffed through equal ethnic representation. This revision also installed a succession plan for when Tito ultimately died that included a collective presidency with representatives from all federal units. Throughout all of these decentralizing measures, one common theme exists. Tito and the party are refocusing the central part of his Brotherhood and Unity slogan. It is less now about highlighting similarities among the nations, but more about the brotherhood and beauty of the diversity in Yugoslavia. However, in the late 1960s and early 1970s, Yugoslavia faced its biggest challenge yet. As a result of decentralization, cultural institutions within each republic were permitted. Croatia did this, and with it came a Croatian movement for independence. Known as the Croatian Spring, Tito had to step in and purge much of the Croatian leadership. However, the unity Tito was fighting to maintain was beginning to crack deeply. Though this period was filled with issues and instances that threatened Tito's Yugoslavia, the presence of the big man himself kept the state together. Tito fought hard and learned to adapt to keep the fragile bonds of Yugoslavia together. Thus, it's not hard to see Tito himself as the glue for Yugoslavia. Part 6. Football in the Storm. Tito's Vision in Football, 1960s to 1980. This final period of Tito's rule saw football become one of the state's most outwardly used weapons to hold the official line. Football remained a powerful tool of international diplomacy and remained the state's shining model of socialist morality, at least outwardly. But as is evident in earlier periods, the behind-the-scenes reality of football was not so positive for the state. 1969 was the 50th anniversary of the foundation of the Football Association of Yugoslavia, FSJ. A strange date itself, as this acknowledged the founding date to be that of the interwar bourgeois iteration of the association, 
Nonetheless, this became a highly politicized affair for the state as celebrations not only highlighted the successes of Yugoslav football, but the Yugoslavian Socialist Revolution as well. Tito awarded the FSJ the Decoration of Merit for the People with a gold wreath. Thus, in a way, Tito was recognizing the FSJ for the value it provided his leadership. The awards handed out to players during these 50th anniversary celebrations were also rooted in socialist symbolism, as player and club official histories were written to highlight how each person or organization behaved in the founding of the socialist state. Application forms for player awards included slots where the nominators had to address where the nominee was during World War II. This period was also characterized by clubs putting memorials within their stadiums that highlighted their socialist credentials. Clubs like Buduchnost Titograd erected memorial plaques for fallen members, while clubs that had been founded following the end of the war, like Naprdat Khrushchevats, erected a memorial gate dedicated to footballers from the town that had fallen. Most of all, in multi-ethnic Bosnia, clubs like Velej Mostar were awarded Tito's highest honors due to their commitment to the unifying principles that Tito had fought so hard for. Internationally, Tito continued to use football as a method to further his international legitimacy, as well as further the non-aligned movement. As tours had been used to cement cultural ties between non-aligned nations in earlier decades, these ties were being made during this period through the exchange of coaches. By 1969, 47 different Yugoslavian coaches were working throughout the non-aligned world in order to help foster a sporting culture within these newly decolonized nations. According to Tito, sports were the best way to start a new nation. Yugoslavian coaches were often preferred in the decolonized parts of the world simply because they did not carry colonial baggage that other European nations did. The greatest sources of issues in relation to football during this period came from trying to use football for unity, as well as trying to use football as an example of socialist self-management. During this period, while some clubs were trying to beef up their socialist credentials, amid a rising tide of nationalism in Croatia, many Croat clubs were blaming the central bureaucracy for their failures. Throughout the 60s and 70s, Croat clubs became increasingly angered by the central bureaucracy, and every single victory or loss was being seen through ethnic lines. Though there were more instances of disunifying behaviors, one fervent unifying activity in football was the National Cup competition. The Marshall Tito Cup included all football clubs within the state, regardless of level. In the final of the competition was always a celebration of the diversity of the state with halftime shows made up of cultural displays from each club's respective society. Though much of the period was characterized by ethnic tensions in football, the Marshall Tito Cup was a symbol of unity. Self-management in football was ultimately made a mess when football was professionalized in the mid-1960s. Although organs were founded to ensure self-managing principles were present in football, things like club presidencies that included fans and players, or a club union to make sure that all clubs were following self-managing principles. The financial viability of football as well as the nature of the sport itself made self-management messy. Self-management led to a lack of accountability being taken for playing failures as well as a lack of understanding for financial compensation. Football was incredibly lucrative for the players, but less so for the clubs leading ordinary Yugoslavs to become rather enraged by the stars they viewed on the pitch. Fuad Mullah Hasanovic raked in upwards of 5.5 million dinars in total from his earning related to football in the 1970s while playing for Sloboda Tuzla, while the average Tuzla resident 
earned only 7,000 dinars annually. Other Yugoslav national team stars would make over 27 million dinars a year if they played in Belgrade. Therefore, football may have been used to promote self-management, yet in reality, self-management and football really didn't work well together. Further, while Tito continued to use football to promote his vision for Yugoslavia, this period complicated the success of these actions and set the stage for what would come following Tito's death in 1980. Conclusion I will now do my best to conclude this rambling about how a sport played in an Eastern European nation drastically impacted its politics and national identity, and I'm going to go a bit off script to discuss my conclusions. If you would like the real academic conclusion, I will leave my contact info in the episode description so you can email me to read the full paper. After months of researching this topic and writing a behemoth of a paper, I have only once stopped to ask myself why. Why do I care? I have one really long-winded answer. Growing up, I struggled to find my own identity. I moved towns at an oddly crucial time of my own development, and for a long time I struggled to fit in. Soccer, or football for my European audience, was a way for me to find a community, and playing the sport throughout my life was truthfully one of the times where I felt most myself. So as I have grown into my interests and stand at the base of a future career in academic history, I found myself fascinated by this case. Though I don't dive deeply into the nitty-gritty of identity politics in the former Yugoslavia, I was curious how fans of football in the former country could feel pride watching a national representation that didn't exactly represent them. For Croats, Serbs, Macedonians, Kosovars, Montenegrins, Slovenes, and Bosniaks, how was the Yugoslavian national team theirs? In my research, I found a familiar story, a story of people finding identity in sports. For all of his flaws, Tito did something magical with football. He gave Yugoslavia a Yugoslavia to find pride in. Despite the fact that during his reign, there weren't separate na Republican national teams, each ethnicity found something in the Yugoslavian national team to cheer for. It wasn't always perfect, but it was there. So in the same way I found my identity through soccer, Yugoslavia found part of itself through football too. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of the only writing podcast you'll ever need, brought to you by the Saginaw Valley State University Writing Center. I'm Garrett Lewis, the producer of this podcast. If you are interested in reading the entirety of this paper, which is 52 pages long, while the script for this episode was only nine, you can find my email in the episode description, and I will be happy to send it to you. I really hope you enjoyed listening. I put a lot of hard work and effort into writing this paper, and it's a really nice thing to be able to share it with others. Thank you for listening.